0: Good morning, everybody. My name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here at uh, Renaissance. Uh, the older I get, uh, the more I start to realize that the things I make fun of my parents for doing and being, uh, I am becoming that person. Uh, one thing that my dad has that I think I've gotten pretty honestly is that I am a, I'm an impulse buyer. Any impulse spenders in here? Don't be ashamed. You can raise your hands. It's a good thing sometimes. Um, I marvel at people who have patience and discipline when it comes to shopping. My wife will go out shopping. She'll look at a pair of jeans, try the jeans on, like the jeans, love the jeans, take them off, put them back on the shelf and say, you know what, I'm really going to think about those. I can just walk past a store and see something that might be fly and I'll buy it and I'll try it on later and figure out whatever happens, happens. (laughs) But I get it honestly. My father is, a, is a, certainly an impulse spender. Uh, he's at the age and season of life where he's taking naps like at 8 p.m., which means that like 2 a.m., he's wide awake. What's the only thing on at 2 a.m.? Uh, infomercials. And when you combine impulse spending with disposable income and catchy infomercials, what you have is... No, not happiness. You have a yellow corn zipper that um, my father came up to me and said, hey, bear. He, call, he calls me a bear. He says, bear, I got something for you. I said, what, pop? He was like, this. And I was like, what is this, dad? Like a corn zipper? What is this for? I have teeth in my mouth. I can bite down on corn. Uh, not to outdo himself, he came up to me a couple of weeks after that and said, bear, I got something else for you. I have, what is this, the clever cutter. The clever cutter. For those of you who don't have the time. To wait three seconds to transfer food from a cutting board to the pot. For you, my friends, I have the clever cutter. (laughs) Celery, hot dogs, carrots, whatever you want. One simple snap. It's all yours. For his grand finale, he brought us a strawberry huller. You know what a strawberry huller does? It takes the stems out of strawberries. Now, you might be wondering and thinking, those rices must really be into strawberries. And if you are thinking that, you would be absolutely wrong. We have no more uh, love for strawberries than the average American. But in case anyone needs to prepare 500 strawberries in five minutes, I am your guy. Now, I love my dad to death. He's one of my best friends. Um, And, you know, these gifts that he got me, one day, listen, I, I might actually need to Uh, prepare a thousand strawberries, we didn't throw those away, right? Like I knew exactly where they were when I started thinking about today. They're in this drawer in my kitchen where I put all the stuff that I might need one day, but don't really have use for on a day-to-day basis. It's not garbage, but it's not really that useful. Uh, The main reason is quite honest is that I just don't have a need for them. Now gifts work like that. People have given you things over the years that, despite their best intentions, they weren't things that you really needed. And as a result, even if you didn't throw it in the garbage, you probably just tucked it off in a drawer somewhere. Now, the components of a really good gift are things that are necessary, things that you actually need and want, things that are unearned. If you had to work for it, then it wasn't a gift, and also things that are costly, Things that you could not provide for yourself. When I think about good gifts, I think about a story of a guy named Mike Rubin. Mike Rubin was 19 years old, and he started feeling lethargic. Played flag football with some friends, and after the game, noticed that he had some bruises that wouldn't go away. After some convincing, he went to the doctor. And after he went to the doctor's office, they did some blood tests and found out that he had leukemia. Now, this was 1982 uh, when they had brand new therapies coming out, and they said, we should do this new therapy called bone marrow transfusion. Where we would take bone marrow from a healthy person, uh, we'll you know, essentially have to kind of go into their hips a little bit and somewhat painful process and extract the bone marrow and put it into you, and that would regenerate your own marrow and your own platelets and would hopefully uh, heal you. Nervous but determined, Mike Rubin's little sister, Jude, Uh, became his donor. And years later, he was in remission. And now 30 years later, um, uh, from uh, almost 40 years later from the incident, they are all smiles. Now, that's a gift. That is not a clever cutter. That is not something that you tuck away somewhere and forget about. That is not something that you uh, never talk about or never think about. That is a gift that would change your life. Now, this is important because we're talking today about a verse of Scripture that Jesus says is a gift to you. And far too many of us view this gift somewhere in the way that I view the strawberry huller. It's something that's good. I'm not going to throw it away. It's come from someone who I love, but I don't see a lot of day-to-day need for it. Uh, The most famous verse in Scripture, even if you haven't been to church your whole life, is John 3.16. It's going to be on the screen, and if you know it, read it alongside with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now, I'm afraid that we are missing the point when we have evaluated this verse and when we read this verse, so much so that you can read it and it just... Flies right over your head and it doesn't really do anything to you. And it's something that you in your life you just kind of tucked it away in a drawer. It's not garbage, but you feel like you pull it out when you need it. Now, we've been in the Gospel of John looking at um, going pretty slowly through the whole Gospel of John. And we've we're in, in John chapter three and we get to this point where Jesus is having a conversation with a Jewish ruler named Nicodemus. And it's going to shed some light on this verse and how amazing of a gift Jesus is, not one that you would tuck in a drawer, but one that you would leave out on the table and tell all your friends about and use every single day. Those are the life-changing gifts. Um, that's, what, that's the effect that a life-changing gift would have on our, our, our lives. So what did God give us? What is Jesus trying to, to say here? What kind of gift is Jesus? What kind of, what does it matter that God gave us his son in Jesus Now, we're going to start at verse 14 today, and very fair warning, it's going to get way more confusing before it gets clear, all right? So verse 14, Jesus is about to start explaining uh, what God's gift is, but before he does that, he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus is essentially saying here in these couple of verses that God's love for you is like a bone marrow transplant, not one of these little trinket gifts that you've gotten once upon a time. It's a gift for you that is necessary, it's unearned, and it's costly. And if you'll let it, it will change your entire life. So what is verse 14 talking about um, It's a pretty peculiar uh, passage of scripture. Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, let me catch y'all up on a conversation a little bit. Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was this dude who was an expert in Jewish law. So when Jesus said to Nicodemus, just like the snake in the wilderness had to be lifted up, Nicodemus was like, oh yeah, the snake in the wilderness. He knew immediately what Jesus was talking about. Uh, Us, 2,000 years later, very few people in here uh, came in today knowing what Jesus actually is meaning and is mentioning. So it's important for us to read the Bible the correct way to get the full context of something. And parenthetically, let me just say this real quick. Whenever you're reading the Bible and you come across something like this, that, you know, just as the snake was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, don't skip that stuff. Like, that's where the gold is. Don't skip that stuff. Spend some time. Set aside 10 extra minutes. Do some Googling. Uh, If you have a study Bible, on the bottom of the study Bibles, uh, for passages like this, it would have references to what Jesus is talking about. Because underneath this stuff is so much um, goodness that helps us understand uh, scriptures like John 3.16 so much better. So, um, it's weird, uh, first of all, that Jesus is comparing himself to a snake. If you read the Bible, if you've understood um, books like Genesis, you see that whenever the Bible generally talks about a snake, it's talking about a curse. It's not talking about blessing. It's talking about the devil. It's not talking about divinity. So why in the world would Jesus then compare himself to a snake? So Jesus is actually quoting from Numbers 21, and Numbers is uh, the fourth book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, And this is happening in the period of time of God's children after Exodus. So there's a couple of really big landmarks in biblical history. Uh, The first huge landmark is the story of Exodus, when God frees his children from slavery and captivity and promises them uh, a promised land in their own, own home country. In between captivity and the promised land is something called wilderness, Wilderness is the gap in between where you came from and where God wants you to go. Now, we can preach an entire sermon series on life in the wilderness and what it looks like to be patient and to trust God in, in this time. But when you look at the children of Israel, they were not patient. They were complaining. They were saying things so reckless, like, yo, it was better for us when we were in Egypt. At least in Egypt, we had three hots in a cot. And we're like, yo, but you were locked up, bro. You were in slavery. Yes, you might have had hot food, it was, but you, they gave you hot food so you could work more. Now you're free, and you're marching toward your destination, and you'd rather be in captivity than to be in freedom, walking towards your, your destiny. So the people are complaining, and they're complaining to Moses, and they're groaning. And um, as they're groaning, this is where the snakes come in. Um, God allows a plague of snakes, these poisonous snakes, to come into the camp, and to start biting people, and people start dying. Now, why in the world would God send snakes into a camp of people? And even more, a better question, what in the world does this have to do with the love of God? Now, there was something more dangerous in that camp than snakes. It was their distrust. Yeah. Distrust kills relationships. More Toxic, then, the venom of the snakes was the venom of their own internal distrust and sin. God sent the snakes to wake them up and to point them back towards himself. So as the people lay there, bitten, uh, infected with this venom, they finally, turn to, um, they finally turn to Moses, and they come to Moses in verse 7 of Numbers 21, and it says, The people then came to Moses and said, uh, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Let me stop there for a second. God's tactics don't always make sense, but God's motivations should always be clear for us. God's motivation, even in sending the snakes, and we'll get to even more why this makes so much sense and how, how profound this is. God's motivation was to turn them back to him. And we see this happening very clearly in verse 7. After God sends his plague, uh, the people turn and they stop and they finally realize, God, we have, we have sinned. We have sinned. Now, sin is something that's extremely easy to see in other people, but hard to see in ourselves. We all have it. Part of the reason Jesus is telling Nicodemus about this snake is because he's looking at Nicodemus and saying, Nicodemus, right now, there is a venom coursing through your veins called sin. And the only way for you to be freed of this sin is to look to me. Now, as Jesus, as the the passage continues in, in, in Numbers So the people said, We have sinned against the Lord. We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he may take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten, he looked at the bronze snake and he recovered. So this is what Jesus is telling Nicodemus when he tells Nicodemus, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's saying in the same way that infected people look to this bronze snake, uh, the same way infected people with sin need to look to me uh, on the cross for their salvation. But Here's the problem with sin. It's a word that nobody wants to talk about, mainly because I don't know that we think that we really have it. We like to think of ourselves operating based on external circumstances. So let me ask this question. If I take this bottle of water and I shake it, why does water come out the bottle? Because I shook it. What else? Because the top is off? The water came out the bottle because there is water in the bottle. Water came out the bottle because there's one person got it. That's, that's all I came here for is one person because there was water in the bottle. If you shake an empty bottle, if you take the top off of an empty bottle and shake it as hard as you can, nothing's going to come out. Why is that? Because nothing was inside of it. Here's what happens. Your roommate stole your avocado and now and you hit it with a two piece. And you're like, yo, if she wouldn't want to get hit, she shouldn't touch my avocado. If my husband didn't want to get talked to like that, he shouldn't have did that. If my coworker didn't want to feel feel this fury, then they shouldn't have done that. We live our life based on external circumstances, evaluating and microanalyzing the people who shake us, and we spend zero time thinking about the stuff that's already inside of us. There's a piece of all of us that is so prone to selfishness that it's not even crazy. Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday, mainly because uh, there's no gifts involved, and it's all about food and family. And um, next month we'll get to Christmas, and buying gifts for people, kind of, especially kids, shows just the sinful nature of human beings. Last year we uh, took my my sons uh, to Jamaica, my mother-in-law's house for Christmas, and it was great, man. Christmas morning. We woke up, we're eating like fresh cut mangoes, overlooking this beautiful sight. He opens up all of these gifts and he looks at me and he's like, is that it? I said, we didn't flew your little nasty self all the way down here from New York. And you have the nerve and the temerity and the gall to ask me, is that it? There's a piece of us that all operate like a four-year-old. All the things that God has given you. All the things that God has given you, all the things that five years ago you prayed, you begged God for, now you have it, and now it's just like, I mean, is that it? There's a piece of all of us that operates with a functional distrust, a version of sin that is all about us, and it shows up in every relationship that we have. This is why I think parenting is so hard, because for the first time, many parents are forced, for the first time ever, to to put someone ahead of themselves because now there's this little kid who's helpless and defenseless and you can't leave them to themselves. And it's difficult because now for the very first time in your entire life, you're putting someone ahead of yourself and it's painful. Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he looks at us and he says, there is a venom coursing through your veins right now called sin. Paul talks about this later on in um, the book of Romans He says, um, for I don't understand what I'm doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. What's Paul saying? There's something living on the inside of him that prevents him from doing the things that he wants to do. There's so many times when I'm like, yo, this is my week. Yo, this is my week. I'm about to, like, go hard in, like, my meditation time. I'm going to be, like, uh, I'm going to be so focused this week. Nothing is going to distract me. And then Damian Lillard gets back spasms and messes up my fantasy basketball team. And then before I know it, I spent, like, two hours on NBA.com. And I'm like, I right, let me go ahead and crack the Bible because I'm preaching on Sunday. Let me, uh <laughs> Uh, there's also far more serious examples of, of my life where I, just, I, I live below my own standards. And I, I know you guys know what that feels like. Jesus doesn't respond to us in the way that we might even respond to ourselves. He tells us, in response to you, the person who doesn't do what even you want to do, there is this God who meets us in love. So just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, this shows us a couple of things about Scripture that are really profound. One is that the Old Testament really is something that points to the full picture being made clear in Christ. So Jesus says this in um, Luke 24 and 25. He says, uh, "'How foolish are you, and how slow to believe "'all the things the prophets have spoken. "'Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter his glory. And this is the verse that I want you guys to pay attention to. It says, Then beginning with Moses, and the books of Moses are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and all the prophets, so all these Old Testament books, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all of the Scripture. He interpreted for them the things concerning himself. So Jesus is essentially saying numbers is about me. Jesus takes it a step further and says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. In essence, Jesus is saying numbers 21 doesn't make sense without me in the picture. All numbers uh, 21 is, is a bunch of people getting bit by snakes, but when you put me into the picture, it fulfills it and it shows the totality of divinity in this scenario. Now, so we are in Thanksgiving week, and this is a very sacred time for my family. Um, A couple years ago, there was a a tragedy that took place in our home, Uh, my aunt's sweet potatoes. And um, I don't know who allowed her sweet potato duty, but she basically came with canned sweet potatoes that she put in the microwave and then poured some syrup on top. Yes. (laughs) The next year in a family email, I was like, I'm bringing the sweet potatoes. Fight me. Fight me. Um, Yo, like where is it? Technically, were they sweet potatoes? Yes. But where is the cinnamon? Where's the nutmeg? Like where's like where's the brown sugar? Light and dark. Come on. What are we doing here? There is a lot that needs to be added to them sweet potatoes to make those things edible and fulfilled. Yeah. Jesus is saying, essentially, that the Old Testament are like aunt so-and-so's. I can't put her name out there. Um, <laughs> aunt so-and-so's sweet potatoes. They're edible. They're, they're food, but they're incomplete. A lot of people make the mistake of reading the Old Testament and judging it just for what it is. Don't do that. Jesus says that he is here to fulfill the Old Testament, to add in the flavorings and the gospel to it to make it all make sense. So Jesus says, just as a serpent was lifted up on the pole, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And by turning sinful people, people already affected with the venom of our own distrust and sin, by turning to Jesus, uh, we will find healing. Now, it's one of the most profound things about Jesus saying this uh, even before we get to this, the nature of what God's love is, is essentially what Jesus is, is, is doing, and other New Testament authors pick up on this, is by Jesus identifying with the snake, he's basically saying, I became the curse that you deserved. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians five twenty one. It says, for our sake, God made um, him to be sin who knew no sin, or he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Further, in Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3.13. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for you. What did Christ do on your behalf? Christ took the curse that you deserved. And why did he do that? Because he loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his son, that whoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting love, life. And it shows us what the nature of real love is. Now, I know Disney Plus is out, you know what I'm saying? And I got, I got my subscription. I got somebody else's subscription, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> Pray for me after service, y'all. But um, So Disney Plus is out, and a lot of y'all have been going down memory lane, watching your favorite movies, and you know, uh, I would love to do that. Maybe one day when I don't have kids around, I will. Uh, but Disney Plus has a version of love that's not thats not love, y'all. Yeah. Disney Plus love is emotional. Uh, yeah. Real love is tangible. Yeah. Disney Plus love is something that will leave you floating on the clouds. Real love sometimes is ugly. Yeah. The first thing we see about this about real love from John 3.16 is that real love is sacrificial. Real love is sacrificial. What do we see that uh, God is saying to us in this text? That for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave of himself, and it's sacrificial. Now, in any real relationship that we have, if you want it to thrive, you're going to need to make some sacrifices. Love will always cost you something especially when you're loving imperfect people. This is what so many people don't get. This is what so many people don't get. Real love is always sacrificial. So years ago before I became a pastor, I was um, a a family court attorney, and one of my specialties was juvenile delinquency defense work. Whenever I would would meet with parents, one of the first things I would tell them was that if you want your son or daughter to get the best uh, potential outcome— uh, you should show up to court with them. And the more people that come to court, the better. Because if the judge sees parental support, they're more likely to release them to you instead of throwing them in juvie. This mother, not wanting her son to go to juvie, made every effort to come to court. So much so that even after we wrapped up the first case, uh, the kid, you know, in, in my practice, I would have a lot of kids some kids who would do bad stuff, some kids who were just knuckleheads. He was just a knucklehead. And he was just getting arrested over and over and over again, not even for really bad stuff, just for stupid stuff. Um, and eventually, his mother would show up to court. And one day, I saw her in court, and she just looked—she just looked rough, man. She had missed so many days from um, from her job to come to court to be with her son that she got fired. Eventually, the only job that would hire her and still be able to put bills the, um, pay, uh, put food on the table was doing janitorial work overnight. So she would stay up all night long, cleaning, and then come straight to court, and then go out on job interviews all day. Now, why would she do that? Because she loved them. What's a better picture of love? A card, or losing your job and doing all-nighters? Real love is always sacrificial. Real love gives what is precious and irreplaceable. Real love is sacrificial. The type of love that God is telling us about in John 3.16 is one that he gives up something valuable for the sake of something more important. Jesus is saying that he was sacrificed for something in return. And that something in return is you. So real love is always sacrificial. Number two, real love is not just sacrificial, Real love is one way. One way love. Uh, When I say one way love, I mean that real love doesn't look for anything in return. Jesus asked a question in Luke 6, 32. He says, if you love those who love you, like if you love the people who love you, congratulations. Everybody does that. The type of love that God is trying to push us to both give and to receive is a one way love. Real love gives what's precious and irreplaceable without regard for what it will get in return. Let me help some couples real quick. When is the last time you did something for your significant other? When is the last time you did something for your friend and expected absolutely nothing in return? Until that day, you have yet to love them once. When you stand up in front of a judge or a pastor, and you take vows to God to love someone. You're not taking vows to feel warm and fuzzy on the inside. You're taking vows to commit yourself for the betterment of the other person, even if it costs you something. Real love is one way. It's not looking for something in return. And the type of love that we're talking about here in John 3:16 is not a love that God lives looking for something in return. If you look at the the scripture, the word that John uses is a word called cosmos. Now, um, cosmos is a word that just basically means the entire world, right? So even the people who would reject, deny, and spit on Jesus, received, still were offered this gift. It means that God gives a gift to people who don't deserve it, and some of these people will reject it. Later, um, in another book that John wrote in 1 John Uh, 2, 15 through 16, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in this world, cosmos, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. When John uses this word world, he's saying this is a dirty, disrespectful world. And this is the world world that God gave his most precious thing to. God's love is a one-way love. And here's here's what's so crazy about this. A lot of people have assented to this mentally, but emotionally and spiritually have yet to receive it. And I know this is true because so many people struggle with forgiveness. Forgiveness requires that you receive God's one-way love before you can ever give it out to someone else. One of the primary reasons why we struggle with forgiveness is we just don't think people deserve it. You want to know why that is? because we have yet to receive a love that we ourselves have not deserved. I was talking to a couple in in between services, and she mentioned um, for the last number of months, she's been praying the Lord's Prayer. And every time she gets to that line in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. Forgive us our debts as I forgive others. It reminds her of the one way love that she has received that she is now able to give. If you are with someone, you have a friend, coworker, spouse, significant other, that's really unforgiving, I say this so that you'll build empathy for them, I don't know that they've received that one-way love from God yet. I think they have more of a difficulty receiving love than it is, it's not just that they don't want to give love, it's that they haven't yet received it yet, and you can't give what you don't have. God's love for you is, is one way. And another way that I know it's difficult for people, or I know a lot of people who haven't received it is uh, a lack of patience when they go through difficult times. And difficult times are difficult times. They're not happy moments. But in the crucible of life's difficulties, man, a lot of people just think like, you know what, God must be punishing me. God is getting me back for not showing up to church last Sunday. I knew I should have put more money in the offering plate. I knew I should have signed up for his toy store. I knew I should have done this. I knew I should have done this. And you live your life in this tennis match of what is God going to do next? And you're not thinking that God is a God who gives a one-way love. The scripture tells us as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us. The people in the book of Numbers, all they needed to do was to look to the the serpent. Jesus tells us to look to him and we will receive forgiveness for our sins. God is not paying you back. Um, God never does stuff to pay you back. God does stuff to get us back. It's a big difference. Now, so many of us struggle with patience and difficulty and trusting that God is with us in the wilderness moments of life because we're yet to receive and to really apply that one-way love to our lives. And another way that I know it's true for a lot of people is, you know what, you're just not, you're not generous. You're not generous because the way you operate in life is thinking that everything must be deserved. So you're not going to give money to something that you don't feel like they really, really, really deserve it or someone really has to guilt you in order to do it generosity flows out of a heart that trusts um, and that knows that God gives good things to people who don't deserve it. So as a result, you'll give good things to people who don't deserve it. And this is not just money, but this is also your time. This is also probably most importantly, your kindness, how you treat people who don't deserve it. God's love is a one-way love. Now, the other thing that we see in the scripture about uh, God's love is not only is it sacrificial, not only is it one-way um, and actually, I want to, before I go to the third one, there's a scripture in John, 1 John 4, 9, the same book that I just read from a, a couple minutes ago, where John is really expressed and he tells people what love is. He says, and this is love, not that you loved God, but that God loved you and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for your sins. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. This is love, not that you love God. So stop patting yourself on the back. But that God loved you and gave His Son as a sacrifice for you. This is God's one-way love. So God's love is sacrificial. It's one way, and it is also—it's also not at odds with the concept of judgment. Now, modern people would love a version of love that is as far from judgment as possible. But as we see in the passage I'm about to read, uh, God is a God of profound love and also justice. God is not grace or truth. He is grace and truth. In verse 17 through 21, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Real love is not at odds with judgment. I've been very fortunate to see this up close and personal in my own life, where love and judgment coexist in the same person uh, on December 10th, 2001, I handed in my senior paper at Morgan State University for scopes and methods of uh, political science. Uh, the paper was called Recidivism or Rehabilitation, the method, by which the, penal Syst- the method by which the penal system facilitates recidivism. It was a 50-page paper that had to be due, and in my brilliance, I started the paper, not, started research- not like started writing I started research two days before it was due. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I knew that I was going to have to not just do one all-nighter, I was going to have to do two all-nighters. I called my mother sheepishly, like, yeah, Ma, so I got this paper due. She was like, oh, okay. When is it due? I was like, oh, Wednesday. She was like, okay, how long does that have to be? Ah, 50 pages. And uh, I would send five pages at a time to my mother. And my mother did two all-nighters in a row with me to drag my ashy butt across that graduation line. (laughs) Only my mother would have done that. I don't know (laughs) nobody else on this planet who who would have done that. And that's because we've heard the saying, only a mother's love, right? My brother might call me spoiled, but that's a whole other conversation. (laughs) Now, why did she do two all-nighters, go to work, come home miserably tired, Uh, Do all of this stuff because she loved me. Now, my mother loved me profoundly, but I've also seen her operate in a different role. Um, Next month, we are celebrating the retirement of Judge Gail Rice. She is retiring from the bench. Yes. After over 20 years of faithful service on the bench, she's retiring. And as a child, as a teenager, uh, and all throughout my 20s and and, and my 30s, I've been able to see my mother as a judge. Now, she doesn't have split personality disorder. She doesn't change when she hits the bench. She can be exactly who she is, who is loving and also just. For a lot of us, we would prefer a God that is all just and no grace. There's a lot of us in this room like that who would love a God to just punish people for being wrong. That's not God. Others of us would like a God who is all love and no justice, and just to let everything slide and not to pay attention to any wrongdoing at all. God is neither. God is grace and truth, love and justice. And we see that these two things are not at odds with each other. And this God uh, God of love gives us the gift of his son. It meets our need. It meets our deepest need. It is unearned. There's nothing we could do to earn it and it's costly. You know what I was thinking these last couple of days, how the scripture applies to me and and how it hits my heart. And one of the things that I, I could never get over is how much Jesus on the cross really sets the table for the rest of my life. There's a scripture in Romans 8 and 32 where Paul asks this question. He says, listen, guys, listen in, listen in. If God didn't spare his own son, like, wouldn't he, along with him, give you, graciously give you all things? In the moments of distrust, I look to the cross. I look to the one that is lifted up, and I say, God, even if I can't make sense of the moment that I'm in right now, since you gave me Jesus, I know what real love looks like. And allow me to be patient in the meantime. Let me pray for us. God, our good and gracious Father, um, thank you for showing us what real love is like. Thank you for showing us our needs, as uncomfortable as it may be. Lord, I pray that you would move us towards gratitude; that the default position of our heart would be gratitude and remembrance, and trusting you. In Jesus, let me pray. Amen.